our fall kickoff Sunday. Uh, fall kickoff right on the other side of Labor Day. New rhythms, new habits. Families are back in school. Uh, you know, the weather is changing, and we want to just recreate some new rhythms and habits together. And so if you're not a part of a community group, this is a great time to get connected to a community group. You can do that via rc.link, and then obviously stick around after the service, and it'll be great to meet you and, uh, and to meet one another. In addition, we've got a special sort of thing today, which is uh, I've got a couple books that you may have noticed when you walked in this morning. When I was a kid, the, the sort of general idea of how I would be raised in the Christian faith was that um, my parents would just drop me off at church. Um, I don't know if that was your experience at all, but it was like mom and dad were like, you want to learn about God? Go find a place to be Sunday morning. Um, well, when you read the Bible, what you discover is that the primary responsibility for discipleship, for shaping the next generation, is not the church, but rather the family. And, and the reality is when we say that, many of us immediately say, I don't know how to do that. Uh, maybe you had nobody in your family who showed you how to do that. So just to bless you, because we as a church very much believe in helping equip you as parents to disciple your children, we've got a couple of books on the table at the next step table before you leave. There's two books. The first one is um, maybe my favorite book on parenting. It's a book by Paul David Tripp. Uh, it's called Parenting 14 Gospel Principles That Can Radically Change Your Family. It's, uh, it's a more of a theoretical book. I don't mean that to admission. It's, it's my favorite. It, it, it'll get you thinking right and thinking about the gospel in light of raising your kids. It's unbelievable. It's fantastic. Highly recommend it. And then the second book is called Family Discipleship. This one's by Matt Chandler and Adam Griffin. This book right here is very practical. So if you're like, I don't know how to lead a family devotion, or I don't know how to make those moments in my kid's life, I don't know how to connect those moments to God, uh, this book is fantastic. Both of these books are available. If you've got kids in your home and you're trying to figure out how to do this prayerfully, these books are going to be a great resource to you. So uh, parents, if you've got kids under the age of 18, um, then when you leave, you can grab. These are free. Each one of these, take two of them, one, uh, you know, one of each for yourself and for your family. They're free. Is there anybody? I don't need to keep, keep these up here while I'm preaching. Is there anybody who wants these now that I can just give to? Show of hands. Anyone have the courage to raise their hand? I can do perfect. There you go. I'm just going to call over to David. All right, um, fantastic. There you go. Uh, David's got a couple. You can look them over if you want to, but they're for you. And uh, I just, I mean, I just want to be really clear. We as a church see it as our responsibility to help equip you to do what God's calling you to do. And that's a good thing. Amen? Yep, right. Amen. All right, fantastic. Well, uh, back to the garden. If you have a Bible, would you join me in opening up to Genesis chapter 1? Of all the texts that I will preach on in my life, this will be the easiest to find for you with the Bible. <laughs> Genesis chapter 1 uh, is where we will begin. Uh, we just finished a series on, on 1 Timothy, which was fantastic. And now here we find ourselves in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. Let's read Genesis chapter 1, the first two verses, and then I'll unpack why we find ourselves here together this morning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God 
was hovering over the face of the waters. When I was a child, I watched uh, a Disney movie uh, that I'm sure you're familiar with called The Little Mermaid. Uh, anybody familiar with The Little Mermaid? If I show of hands? This is just a test to see if you're listening, because all of you should have your hands up. Uh, the Little Mermaid is a very famous film. In The Little Mermaid, there is a scene that um, struck me and has always kind of struck me, and uh, I'll show you why in a moment. There's a scene where Ariel, the main character of The Little Mermaid, is fascinated by the human world. And she discovers a, a, a bunch of trinkets from the human world. And she comes upon uh, her friend, who is a seagull, named Scuttle. And as she unpacks these items from the human world, Scuttle, the seagull, looks at these items and grabs one of them and says, I know exactly what this is. And she, without knowledge of the human world, fascinated by it, says, what is it? And Scuttle, with great confidence, says, it's a dinglehopper. Now, this is funny for the audience because we can see that what he's holding in his hand is a fork. But with great confidence, he says, it's a dinglehopper. And he says, and I know exactly what it's for. It's humans use this to straighten their hair. So he begins to comb his hair with this fork, and as a child, you're laughing because you recognize instinctively that that seagull has no idea what that is. It's a fork. He has no idea what it's for. But with confidence, he thinks he does. That chaos, later on in the film, leads to Ariel at a dinner party, picking up a fork, and with great confidence, brushing her hair. That moment of foolishness, where, where, you're, where you're looking at, at something and you're declaring, I, I know what that is, I know what it's for, and being completely wrong is like the whole world we live in today. Who are we? What are we for? Those questions are debated. You'll see them in the media, you'll see them in the news, you'll see them in Hollywood, you'll see them in music. Everyone's got an opinion. I know what it is. I know what it's for. Throughout the New Testament, when Jesus is often asked most important questions about human beings, about marriage, about salvation, about taxes, there's this moment, these moments in the New Testament where they constantly say, oh, you want to know? You've got to go back to the garden. You've got to go to the Garden of Eden. It's at the Garden of Eden. It's in Genesis that those foundational questions are answered. Because if you don't get the garden right, you're likely to not get anything right. And so for a while, in a world that has felt to me increasingly confused about some of the biggest questions in the world, I've been convicted that we should go back to where Jesus, to where Paul, to where the apostles say we need to go, to reestablish some of those foundational beliefs so that we don't find ourselves standing before God, combing our hair with a fork. And so we find ourselves in Genesis. Over the next 10 weeks, we're going to be in the first four chapters of Genesis. And Genesis is going to open our eyes to all sorts of foundational things that God reveals to us that we need in order to engage with the world that we live in. 
So this is my outline this morning and how we'll spend our time. I want to spend a few moments just giving you an overview of Genesis generally. I want you to understand this book before we begin to walk through it. And then we'll talk about God in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and then potential in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Let's begin with Genesis. The title of the book Genesis means beginning. You find that word a few times, ten times throughout the book of Genesis, and the book is filled with beginnings. It gives us the beginning of our beliefs about God, the beginning of our beliefs about humanity, the beginning of our beliefs about work, about creation. The beginning of so many doctrines, including salvation, are found in this book, Genesis. But it's not just a book filled with doctrine. Rather, it's a book filled with stories. You're familiar with, I'm sure, many of the stories. The book is broken up into two sections. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are called the primeval history. They're, they're the history prior to the patriarchs in Genesis. So chapters 1 through 11, primeval history. And that primeval history is made up of four large events. Creation, fall, flood, tower. And then chapter 12, all the way through chapter 50, we discover what's called the patriarchs, the patriarchal history. And that is concerned with the four chief patriarchs of Israel, Abram, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And so this fall, as a church, we will just be in the first part of the first half of this book in the first four chapters. Genesis was written by Moses. Uh, you, can, uh, you can sort of read about uh, the debate around that, but that's the traditional view and I think the right view, though there are little sections in Genesis that are added by later authors. But on the whole, the book is written by Moses, and it was written around the time that Israel had been wandering in the desert. If you don't already know the story of God's people, Israel was enslaved in Egypt. And after slavery in Egypt, God parted the Red Sea, sent the plagues, did the Passover, and brought his people into the wilderness as they prepared for the promised land. And in that wilderness, Moses is teaching them where they came from, how they got there, and why the Egyptian views about the gods and its polytheism, which had been so oppressive to them, had resulted in their slavery and mistreatment, had completely missed the reality of the way things are. Namely, that God is God, and that everything that was happening in Egypt was not. See, in Egypt, Egypt had taught the people that there were multitudes of gods, and that all of those gods were constantly fighting with each other, and all of those gods were sort of a part of creation, and that those gods in there wrestling with each other were just as selfish and wicked as humans, and the Egyptians believed not in the dignity of human beings, but the, the Egyptians believed that human beings were to be used just at the expense or the pleasure of the gods. That sort of view, you can see, quickly leads to slavery, because it doesn't hold to the dignity of human beings. And so as these nomads in the desert who have escaped slavery are wrestling with their own history, Moses encounters God and then declares to the people the reality that they did not yet understand, which was that God is not one among many, 
that God is not in competition, that God isn't struggling for control, but that God is the reason for everything. And that reality, that God is the reason for everything, is needed today as much as it ever was then. Genesis will teach us that God exists, that God has revealed himself, that God has created everything, that God is not the same as his creation, but is distinct from it, that God cares about his creation, that God brings order, that God made his world good, that man is the reason that things are so messed up, and God responds to man's sinfulness and rebellion with his own goodness. I have been excited to, 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 to teach through Genesis with you all, and I'm excited about this morning. So uh, let's dive in once again. Let's hear these words from Genesis 1, 1 and 2 one more time. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's talk about God. When Moses begins and lays out the first words of the first book of the Bible, in the beginning, God, God is the focal point. God is spoken of 35 times in this opening section because Moses wants you to understand that God is the center of all things. God is eternal. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God made everything. Prior to the beginning, all there was was God. God is eternal. That's the first thing you need to know about God, that God is eternal. The Egyptians had taught and were under the belief that sort of all things were eternal and the gods, uh, the gods sort of emerged into the eternal chaos. But here Moses writes and has uh, helped the people to understand that God is eternal and the universe actually has a beginning. In 1929 in America, Edwin Hubble discovered what we call the Red Shift where he noticed that the universe is expanding at every place that he looked. This led to the hypothesis that if the universe has always been expanding, if you wind back time, all of the universe will come to a single moment, a moment where in which everything immediately came into being. This beginning is called the Big Bang or the Big Bang Singularity. And the Big Bang is still the best scientific explanation we have for the beginning of everything in the universe. Notable agnostic cosmologist Alexander Blanken, he wrote that it's said that an argument is what convinces a reasonable man, and proof is what it takes to convince an unreasonable man. With proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Blanken said, we can no longer believe that the eternal universe, the universe has always been eternal. It has a beginning. And Blanken says, this is a problem for cosmologists. Well, why is it a problem for cosmologists to declare that there was a creation moment, a moment when everything came into being? Because it, it begs the question or asks the question about who caused the universe to come into existence. 
where the scientist struggles and struggles and struggles to find an answer. They peer over the edge and see the Christians sitting there all alone. God. God is the creator. God is the one who brought things into existence. The universe began to exist. It has a beginning. But God never began to exist. God is eternal. This is a familiar claim to us, but a shocking one at the time, especially if you were Egyptian. If you were an Egyptian, you were teaching something quite different. And here, after delivering God's people through the Red Sea, Moses lets the people know that, no, you've gotten it wrong. God is not in competition with all of those other gods. In fact, the reason for everything is that God brought everything into existence. God is not a part of the universe, but rather that God is the one who brings the universe into being. Everyone in our world has to wrestle with the question of origin. How did we get here? Why are we here? The universe is vast. Our planet is relatively small. And yet here we are as human beings, as conscious creatures, as living, created beings. Why are we here, and how did we get here? That is a question that if you have any desire to think at all, you must at some point ask. Do you know that there's never been a non-religious society and culture ever discovered in the world? We've never discovered a tribe that did not believe that something bigger than themselves ever existed. That's odd, right? It's because in our very hearts is this longing for something bigger than us. And that thing that is bigger than us is God, who always has been. Here we have this radical truth. Hear it again from Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In the beginning, God. And that word beginning... Um, is a Hebrew word that has an end sort of in mind, right? Like, like it, it, uh, the beginning of the year has an end of the year, right? The, the in the beginning is that God is the one who initiates, and God knows the end from the beginning. Our perspective as human beings is so limited. We see only trials, only struggles, only grief. But in every struggle and trial and difficulty you face, God already sees on the other side of it and is in control and is good. On Good Friday, God already saw Resurrection Sunday. So many of you, the difficulties in your life are experiencing these Good Friday moments. And if you understand that God is eternal, then you will get that even though all you can see is Friday, God still sees Sunday. And it may be Friday, but Sunday is still coming. He sees the end from the beginning because he is eternal. Not wrapped in his creation, but rather the creator of it. I, I want to just remind, as I was praying for you all, some of you need to hear this this morning. You are not at the end of your story yet. God is eternal. But God just isn't just eternal. God is also the creator. In the beginning, God created. Now that should seem self-evident to us because we know basic facts 
from nothing, nothing comes. And yet, what the Bible teaches is that prior to the heavens and to the earth and to everything, there was God, and God brought it into existence. You and I do not have the ability to create from nothing, but God does. God creates everything from nothing. This is how the, how the writer in Hebrews puts it. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God created the heavens and the earth from nothing. God, in relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from eternal past, with a plan, set in motion everything by God's word. Why planets? Why the stars? Why clouds? Why plants? Why you? God. God is why. God is why you exist. You are not a byproduct of chance. Our universe is something like 46 billion light years in size that we know of. It's massive. And this massive thing did not pop into existence on its own accord, but rather God made it. He made it for himself. And you are a part of it. In order to make a universe like that, we're talking about a being that must be timeless, spaceless, immaterial, incredibly powerful. And that, that being brings everything into existence. Moses begins in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Author A.W. Pink says that false religions and human philosophies begin with man, and then in some cases they seek to work up to God. But the Bible begins with God as the one who was in the beginning, the one who made all that is. We must, in all our thinking, begin with God. He is the source of all else. God creates. And God who creates is not an it, but a him. God is eternal. God is creator. God is personal. Some in our society today look upon crystals or New Age mysticism to understand things. It's probably more common in a coffee shop, if you're listening carefully to those around you in L.A., to give credit to the universe for different things. The universe is so kind to me. The universe helped me find my car keys. The universe got me that job. We love to blame and or to thank the universe because I think intuitively we understand that we want a relationship with something larger than ourselves. But the universe isn't personal. And have you ever thought about how at the core of your being, you are a relational person? Personal beings desire relations with other persons. ChatGPT and AI can only pretend to be human. They'll never actually be personal. And there is no way, if you really think about it, to relate to an impersonal being. We are relational beings. In the 1970s, there was a man named Gary Dahl who was sitting at a table with some of his friends as they were complaining about their pets. 
how difficult it was to maintain their pet. So he came up with an idea. He developed My Pet Rock. My Pet Rock was like a, a rock inside of a cardboard box that was sold to people that said, hey, pets are difficult, why not have a rock as a pet? He included instructions in My Pet Rock that said that teaching the rock to sit and stay are very easy. <laughs> teaching the rock to shake hands was impossible. But the rock could attack with help. <laughs> My Pet Rock was a novelty. Because I think we all know that it's a gag and a joke to begin to think that we can have a relationship with a rock. The universe is not an accident. It's not just a random chance that came into existence, but rather at the center of the universe is a personal God. The eternal, personal, creator God who is the reason that you look the way you look. He is the reason that you're gifted the way that you're gifted. He knows every hair on your head. He is the reason that you have in a des your desire in you to be loved and also to be known. He is at the center of everything, and he made you for relationship with him. Too many people think that Christian faith is a series of rules laid out. Follow the rules, you have the faith. That just isn't what the Bible teaches. Those rules exist as a, as a means of helping us understand what does it mean for us to be human beings in right relationship with the one who made us. If you were ever taught or raised to believe that Christianity is a set of rules, you've just been misled. Christian faith starts with the notion that God made you for relationship with himself. To have the rules and not relationship is to not have God. You are a relational being made for a relationship with a relational God. The alternative theories are fascinating. Because you have to wrestle with how did we get here, and so one of the more common things is to declare that an impersonal protein led to a, comic, a cosmic accident with an unintentional collision, and that, that accident, and over time, and impersonal, and you just give it enough random chance, uh, yada, 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 Shakespeare. <laughs> Or just like impersonal objects, a lot of time, a lot of random chances, love, dignity, respect, justice, morality, beauty. If the universe is impersonal, then there is no ultimate ground for dignity. But if the creator of all has made all, and if God is loving and just, and if we are accountable to God as stewards of everything that he has made because it all belongs to him, then you get love and you get justice and you get equality. Those things emerge from a belief that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Christian faith, we have a big bang, but we have a big bang. <laughs> The, the late Professor Harlow Shapley of Harvard said, Some people piously proclaim, in the beginning, God. I say, in the beginning, hydrogen. 
I mean, that's the choice. Either a personal creator is the source of all, or matter and chance is the source of all. In the end, this is not a question of science versus faith. It's faith versus faith. You were made by an eternal creator. You were made by and for another. Your life was not designed to point to yourself. Go pursue that and then come back when you're miserable. You weren't made to be your own. In fact, your whole life, the secret, one of the secrets of your whole life is that your whole life should look like it doesn't belong to you. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, which I uh, read again this summer, there is this great passage on the, the folly of mind. If you don't know the screw tape letters, it follows the story of two devils who spend the work uh, trying to figure out how to corrupt the human beings. And at one point, the devils say, the humans are always putting up claims to ownership, which sound equally funny as they do in hell, as in heaven as they do in hell. And we must keep them doing so. It's like a royal child whom his father has placed for love's sake in in titular command of some great province, under the real rule of wise counselors, should come to fancy that he really owns the cities, the forests, and the corn. And in the same way as he owns the bricks on the nursery floor. And all the time, the joke is that the word mine, in its fully possessive sense, cannot be uttered by a human being about anything. It's my time. Right? Hilarious. You think that's your time? This is my money. You think that's your money? These are my gifts. You think it's your gift? This is my job. In fact, at one point, I just love this passage in Deuteronomy where God says, be careful that when you settle down in the promised land, you don't look around at all that you have accumulated for yourself and you say, by my hand and my power, I have built this for myself because then God will say to you, who gave you your hand? Mm -hmm. Mine? You think it's yours? It's never been yours. You are merely stewards of what God has given you, including your very life. God is eternal. God is the creator. God is personal. Lastly, as we wrap up, I just want to talk about verse 2 for a moment, which is potential. In verse 2, you get, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The, the earth, after God, he creates, and then the earth is formless and empty. And the Hebrew word, which I just like to say, so I'm going to say it, is tohu vavohu. It's fun to say. Tohu vavohu, which just is formless and empty. It means disordered, inhabitable, uninhabitable, uninhabited, dark covering the earth was this deep, primeval ocean. And just in the same way that a potter who's going to make a masterpiece begins first with the clay, so too God takes this raw material, and in this terrestrial state called tohu vavohu, God then, with his spirit hovering over the face of the deep, which 
Spirit means breath. God's breath over this chaos and disorder and darkness. God will, as we'll talk about next week, breathe. And as God breathes out his speech, his word, everything comes into being. The psalmist says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hope. The word of God creates life. The word of God creates light. The word of God creates newness and order, and it brings beauty out of what is just potential. When he was 26 years old, Michelangelo was handed one of the largest pieces of stone ever given to an artist. He had two years to take a chisel to slowly move through that in order to have come out of it David. When Michelangelo was asked about this project, he said that he was just revealing what was there all along. Michelangelo looked at that slab and saw David inside, and it just needed to be chiseled in order to get at A chisel in the hands of Michelangelo means David. A chisel in my hands is going to be about the ugliest sculpture you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> Some of you might feel like you're just like an ugly marble slab. And you're like, you don't really know what to make of your life. And that's because you're still holding the chisel. You were not made to make yourself. You were not made to carve yourself, to create yourself. You were not made to form yourself, to master yourself. And you can't make beauty out of your own story. But God can. The great struggle for many of you is waking up each day and deciding, who's going to chisel me? And will I give up the chisel to God? And how does God chisel us? Again, by his word. God's word is what shapes his people, as it does here in Genesis 1 3. And that same word took on flesh and dwelt among us. The writer of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The word that creates life, the word that creates beauty, the word that created you, that word Enter into the world in Jesus. Because by ourselves, our own decisions and choices perpetually lead us to be separated from God. And that separation from the life is death. And God, out of a desire to be in relationship with you, decided not to leave you in a state of separation, but instead sent his son, the word made flesh, to die on a cross and raise the third day, that whoever would turn from their life of death and darkness and chaos and destruction would find life and 
and light and love in God. I don't know where you're at this morning. If you're struggling to search for meaning and hope and purpose in life and you feel disconnected from God, you don't have the peace of God, you don't know God, I want you to know he desires to know you and he made a way for it to happen in and through his son. God is eternal. He holds the past and the future together, and he is in control. God is the creator. He is who you were made by and made for. You do not own yourself. You were made for God. God is personal. I'm not talking merely about religion, but about a relationship with the one who made you. God speaks, and his word brings order to chaos. Some of you, as we walk through Genesis, you're going to be uh, in the camp of like, I don't really know about this, and I don't really care about this. Uh, I'm, I'm praying for you that God would stir up a desire to know why you exist. Some of you, you don't know. You don't know if God exists. You don't know about Christian faith. You don't know about any of this. And you don't think anyone else can know anything. To which I say, I hope that God humbles you. Because that's an awfully proud position. But some of you don't know and you want to know. Well, I invite you to keep showing up in the weeks ahead. You do not have to guess why you are here. You don't have to wonder what you're for. You are not a dinglehopper. <laughs> you were made by God and for God. Made for a purpose. And as we journey together, we'll discover more about what that's about. God, we're, we're just going to be honest with you. In our world, we are told constantly that we are to create ourselves. That we are to make ourselves. That we are the master of our domain. That we are in charge of our destiny. That we are in control. We see everything as belonging to us. It's, it's almost like, Lord, that the world is perpetually attempting to convince us that we sit at the center. And when we sit at the center, when we ask to sit on your throne, chaos. Our marriages fall apart, Lord, when we think that it's about us. Our homes fall apart when we think it's about us. Our jobs fall apart when we think it's about us. Our lives are to be perpetually pointing away from ourselves to you. The people are to look at us, God. We pray and ask that you would help that when people look at us, they would see us as a people who clearly belong to you. That the people would look upon the Christians and they would say, oh, those Christians, they live as though they belong to someone else. They live as though every relationship is one of stewardship. Every possession is one of stewardship. Every act is in light of the fact that you are our creator, that you are eternal, that you are good, and that you long to be in relationship with us. Do not let us leave this morning, Lord, without encountering you. Knock on the door of our hearts and remind us that you love us, you've come to forgive us, that you've come to give us yourself, let us leave this morning just 
soaring at the idea that the God who made everything knows me and wants a relationship with me. Let us be a people who don't just know about you, but know you. And we cannot do that apart from your Holy Spirit. So fill us this morning. Convict us of our sin. Help us to see our need for you. Let none of us ever say we have no need of God. But rather, let each one of us say, Lord, we need you. We need you. And let us discover that you're more amazing.